Welcome to the Ego Sumvia podcast with me, Father Andrew Eber. As always, I invite you to begin by joining with me in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, take away from me whatever keeps me from you. My Lord and my God, give to me whatever brings me to you. My Lord and my God, free me from myself, that I might give you all I am, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of my earliest clergy memories dates to my childhood, when, as a young boy in our little village, I remember seeing the rector, uh, the village Anglican clergyman, an austere, craggy and imposing figure to me, seeing him on that day with his jacket off and his sleeves rolled up in the sunshine, but with a black bib at his chest and a full clerical collar mowing the lawn. He was never seen, the village rector, without his collar, and that was part and parcel of his immersion within the village community, in which he had a really important role. But he didn't have two personae. He didn't have a, a private identity separate from his public one. And more importantly, he didn't have a non-clerical identity, which he lived out separately from his clerical identity. Why does a priest wear clerical clothes? Today I'm going to share with you some thoughts, some responses to that question and other associated questions to do with clerical status and dress and treatment. So this is not at all a comprehensively argued thesis, but just a collection of thoughts, really. And I've got a list of headings here, just to remind me. So the first words on my list are witness and availability. Witness and availability. So if I start off with my own experience, which is that when I was in prison, as a chaplain, I need to add always, when I was in prison, uh, I was a lay chaplain, and then I was ordained, ordained to the diaconate. So one day I went to prison in lay clothes, and then the next day I went to prison in clerical clothes, in black, uh, with a dog collar. And it made a difference, it made a very big difference. The number of people who started coming up to me because they could see straight away who I was, who I represented, who I belonged to even. And they could see my availability. They could see, that is, that as a clergyman, I was available to them. I was there for them. That's what this clothing said to them. And a lot more people uh, than usual just approached me to ask me stuff, even to engage me in conversation. And that sign of who I belong to, now that's important too. As you know, we familiarly call the clerical collar a dog collar. But a dog collar in real life shows, or should show, who the dog belongs to. Who the dog's owner is. And that's true of the clerical collar. And it was true for me in prison. The collar showed who I belonged to, that I belonged 
to Jesus that I'd given myself away, if you like. And that's a really important act of witness. Sometimes priests, perhaps, I don't know, particularly from a certain generation, don't like to be in clericals. You know, and maybe there's an idea that you can get under the radar if you're not in black. But this point about witness and who I belong to, you know, it is an extraordinary gift that the priest makes of his life. Now here I'm not speaking particularly of myself personally, I'm speaking in general terms. The priest or religious brother or sister is someone who has given their entire life away to God. And it is really good for that gift, that giving away, to be visible to the world. The world needs to see this. The world needs to see that there is a way of living your life by giving it away. So that in itself is an act of witness and also a vocational act. People who are considering what vocation to follow in life need the visible witness. And it attracts people. It's become very obvious, for example, that uh, religious orders who have abandoned the habit have declined in numbers dramatically compared to religious orders that have retained the habit. Okay, so uh, the next words on my list say, it's not about you. I knew a bishop once, I won't name him, but he hated people bowing to him. I don't mean in ordinary life, I mean in the Mass, in the liturgy, where, as a matter of course, you bow to the bishop just as you bow to the altar or genuflect the tabernacle, etc., etc. Anyway, this bishop hated being bound to. And I always remember him saying to me once before a Mass, when I was going to be with him, saying, don't bow to me. Actually, me being me, I did bow to him just quite subtly, and you know, in a restrained way. But anyway, he had made it very clear what he wanted, and of course he's the bishop, so I didn't say anything back. But if I had said something to him, if I had dared, I would have said, it's not about you. We're not bowing to you, we're bowing to your office the office of bishop because as the bishop you represent the apostles that's why we're doing it so we're not bowing because of your winning personality or your marvelous mind or indeed your extraordinary virtues it's not about you and this revert this uh, works in reverse if you like uh, as a priest i have to admit i don't feel particularly comfortable when people call me by my first name rather than calling me father. I think I understand why they do it, but again, it's not about me, all this. I'm called father because I'm a priest, because of that office. And I'm not sure that um, dressing down, so to speak, whether in what we wear or in how we speak to each other, really works. And then the next heading on my list really carries on this theme. And the heading says, call me Bob. Call me Bob. So I'll explain the context uh, for that heading. Now, this is about a friend of mine who was in seminary in Ireland in the 70s. 
And in those days, Ireland was flush with priests and with bishops. Every seminary had a resident bishop. And this chap said to me in his seminary, they had their own resident bishop. But our bishop, he said, never wore a collar, never wore clericals. And he told the seminarians, call me Bob. Now, I understand, I think, uh, the desire there for human friendliness and approachability and all that. And that's all very good. But, again, it's not about you. In the seminary, it is in a very concentrated way about vocation, about, as I say, giving your life away, making that that life-changing gift. And no one wants to give their life to Call Me Bob. And not understanding the difference between the personality and the office, between the person and the office, is, uh, apart from anything else, one of several reasons for the decline in priestly vocations. Now, I've got, gosh, another five things on this list to go, but I think um, we're really going to run short of time for this week. So I'll just pick um, one last one to finish with. I've got written down here, we are never not Catholic. We are never not Catholic. What do I mean by this? Well, we've been talking about priesthood, and if you think about the sacrament of holy orders, the sacrament of ordination, one of the key things about the sacrament of holy orders is that it leaves an indelible mark upon the soul. This is the teaching of the church. Once you are a priest, you are a priest forever. As the psalm says, you are a priest in the church, in the parish, on campus, in Tesco's, when you're asleep. You are never not a priest because of that indelible mark left by the sacrament. But ordination is not the only sacrament to leave an indelible mark upon the soul. There are two others, and they are the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of confirmation. So, if you have been baptized and confirmed, indeed, if you have only been baptized, you yourself have an indelible mark upon your soul which means that you are a Catholic forever and always, and at all times and in all places. You are a Catholic in the church and on campus and in Tesco's and when you're asleep and when you're just walking down the road. Your soul has been changed by the sacrament. It has us, as I say, this indelible character or mark which always remains. The question then is, if there is this indelible mark upon your soul, the mark of Christ, the sign and reality that you are a Catholic, can anyone else see it? That's the question. The state of the soul has changed, but can anyone else see this? That's the question for us, and it's our opportunity, and it is also our call. We are called to be visibly Catholic. In the shop, in school, on campus, in the workplace, in the pub, to be visibly Catholic. And if I can then go back to uh, my starting point, we are called to be just as visibly and unmistakably Catholic in the world as my craggy Anglican vicar was visibly and unmistakably clerical, mowing his lawn, on that summer's day, 
all those years ago. Amen. And now the Gospel and my homily for this weekend's Mass, the seventh Sunday of Easter. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Jesus raised his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that your Son may glorify you. And through the power over all mankind that you have given him, let him give eternal life to all those you have entrusted to him. And eternal life is this, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth and finished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, it is time for you to glorify me with that glory I had with you before ever the world was. I have made your name known to the men you took from the world to give me. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now at last they know that all you have given me comes indeed from you, for I have given them the teaching you gave to me. And they have truly accepted this, that I came from you, and have believed that it was you who sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they belong to you. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and in them I am glorified. I am not in the world any longer, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. The Gospel of the Lord I am not in the world any longer, but they are in the world. He has gone. Jesus has ascended. And so as he says, he is not in the world anymore, but his disciples are. So what do they do? What do we do as his disciples now that he has ascended, now that his incarnate ministry on earth has concluded? He has, of course, left us some clues to guide us. We heard one of them in last week in the Gospel, I shall not leave you orphans, one of the promises that Jesus makes to his disciples before the ascension. But what does Jesus leave behind him? What does he leave for us when we, as his disciples, seek to live out our Christian life in the world? Well, Jesus speaks of what he leaves behind in his various final discourses to the disciples at the Last Supper and at the Ascension itself. Before anything else, he leaves behind a promise, a promise of his continuing presence. Know that I am with you always, yes, to the end of time. And we know the different ways in which that presence is experienced in the Eucharist, in the sacraments, for example, in the sacrament of confession, in our prayers, in the scriptures, etc. But alongside that promise, he also leaves behind him three commands or commissions. Firstly, 
Uh, the command to continue to celebrate the Eucharist. Do this in memory of me, he says at the Last Supper. And of course we do so every Sunday, even though temporarily for many of us it is only a spiritual communion, but we do what he has asked. And then the second command or commission is to witness to him. You will be my witnesses, he says to the disciples, not only in Jerusalem, but throughout Judea and Samaria, and indeed to the ends of the earth. And that's also our job now in our daily lives. You will be my witnesses. And then the third commission, what we call the Great Commission, is the commission to make disciples. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all all the commands I gave you. To bring other people with us into the kingdom of heaven, which might start by bringing them to mass one day when we're able, or helping other people to come to faith, helping and actively supporting each other in our faith lives. Now, of course, we don't take on those commissions unaided. We have, as we know, the presence of Christ himself, but he has also promise to leave behind him, as we've been hearing in the Gospel recently, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is sent to us to guide and inspire us, but especially to strengthen us in order that we can witness. To strengthen us to witness, and then alongside that to guarantee the teaching of the Apostles, what we call the Magisterium, the teaching authority of the Church, which is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, as Jesus calls him. And then finally, of course, and very importantly, Jesus leaves behind in something he has created, which is a community, an ecclesia, the church. This community, the church, is the you that Jesus is speaking of. You will be my witnesses. I am with you always. So we have all these things that Jesus has left behind him, but it's also worth quickly reminding ourselves what he hasn't left behind him. So he hasn't left a rule book, such as the book of the law that the Jewish people observed, and he hasn't left behind him a Bible. That's not there yet. In fact, he hasn't left a text of any kind. And that is why, by the way, if we want to know how God wants us to live. We look to Jesus and his church and the teaching of the apostles guided by the Holy Spirit. We don't look to the sole authority of the Bible. And as Jesus says in the Gospel today, he has left us in the world, but he has not left us orphans. He has left us his present, his commissions to celebrate the Eucharist, to witness to him, to make disciples for him, he has left us the Holy Spirit to guide and inspire us and to guarantee the Church's teaching. And he has left us the Church herself. All these gifts that we have been given. And now this is the crux of it. God has given us everything we need to live a life that is authentic and fulfilling and will make us happy as no other life will. We lack nothing 
that is required for this. We are, as the disciples of Jesus, left in the world, but we have these gifts. Now, the world itself has gifts of its own. The world has its own idea of life to offer us, its own agenda for us. So my request for you today is this. Always test what the world offers against these gifts that God has given us. Because in that comparison, what we as Christians have been given will never come up short. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, as we come to the end of this podcast, thank you so much for being with me. And as always, do get in touch with any comments or questions you have, any suggestions for things we ought to cover. And you can reach me on my Diocese of East Anglia email address, which is andrew.eburn at rcdea.org.uk. And I'll upload another episode next Sunday and look forward to joining you then. Let's end then, as we always do, with the prayer of our Lord. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you all, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.